0: Welcome to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell. I'm a talent management thought partner and results coach, wife, and mom. Talent management leaders are hungry to learn from their peers and want to hear about real life talent initiatives. This podcast is for and by talent management leaders. My guests and I dig into successes, challenges, and lessons learned from a very practical, not theoretical point of view you'll discover important insights about how to elevate your confidence and amplify your influence in a role known for being caught in the organizational middle. I'm thrilled to have you listening. So let's get going and hear the truth about talent management today. Talent acquisition is a critical part of a company's ability to function effectively. The idea of screening or interviewing for job and company fit is not new. We can all agree that this is an important factor in the whole process. But where does it belong in the process itself? In this episode, your ideas about where this factor should fit may be challenged in a good way. My guest is Jan Vanderhoop, Hoop, president of Fit First Technologies. Jan is passionate about helping businesses find the right people in the most efficient way. FitFirst offers a suite of technology services ranging from applicant screening to reference checking to career matching. This was such a fun interview, as you will recognize from the few laughs we had on air. Jan is a very engaging speaker with strong convictions and the data to back those up. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to Talent Management Truths. I'm joined today by Jan van who's the founder of Fit First Technologies. Welcome to the show, Jan.
1: Thanks, Lisa. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, so I thought it would be interesting for our listeners to first to hear a little bit about who you are and about Fit First and what you do.
1: I'd say so. I'm, I'm sort of a career misfit in a lot of respects. So, you know, it's funny, I, I, my career has not been linear. By any stretch. I started as a management trainee with Hilton International Hotels, so on the operations side of things back in the early 80s, and accidentally found myself in HR, and it was one of those things. I mean, the industry is such that there's a lot of movement anyway. They try to tell you that the movement is is planned and deliberate, and really it's more based on turnover. So it turned out that the assistant director of personnel, as they were called back in the day, had moved on to something else, and I happened to be in the right place at the right time and the director of personnel tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Hey, would you fill in for a few months?" and I thought that would be sort of the next step on the management rotation. And again, one thing led to another. The industry being such as it was, Richard, who was the director, got promoted to the UK. I found myself in my mid-20s, the youngest director of HR at the largest Hilton hotel in the world and mm-hmm. a learning curve near vertical. And It was a wonderful time in my career. I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, manager and mentor, Richard really pushed me hard when he was there. You know, there were lots of times it didn't feel great and I didn't necessarily appreciate it in the moment, but I really began to appreciate later on what opportunities that had afforded to me. You know, worked through some pretty significant stuff at Hilton before Frito-Lay came along and recruited me to join them. So I spent about six years with the Frito-Lay organization with some pretty big regional assignments. So at first it was Ontario, both manufacturing as well as sales and accounting and, you know, other departments. And then they gave me Western Canada. So I was living in Calgary, but serving everyone from Thunder Bay to Victoria. So there was lots of of exciting things going on.
0: Well, and hopefully getting some Lovely bowls of lightly salted on the side. It's my favorite.
1: Oh my God! You, you, if you've never tasted Miss Vicky's straight off the line or or a Cheeto, is that right? Oh my word! Divine! Oh, unbelievable! Whoa, whoa, whoa. So anyway, it was it was it was Frito Lay for about six years, and was recruited from there to run HR in Canada for Office Depot, which I did for about four years. You know, in hindsight, I would say the 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 pattern that came clear at the end of all that. Lisa was, I'd operated in subsets of US, or you know, Canadian subdivisions of US organizations, which is always a special kind of pain on a good day. Yes, it is. You know, each time when I joined the Canadian division had an awful lot of autonomy. So as a member of the senior leadership team, you know, I I worked with others around the table to figure out what our strategic plan was going to be and then to execute the heck out of it over the course of the year. And each time, That was eroded while I was in the job. So, you know, the Americans would look north and say, Canada's not really that different. And why don't we operate it out of Chicago or why don't we operate it out of wherever? And so our roles really went from being very strategic to being executing somebody else's plan. And again, in hindsight, what I realized about myself is when I'm executing somebody else's plan, I lose a sense of ownership. That's really important to me. And that's where I started to disengage each of the three Mm -hmm. times. And, and it was after my third stint with Office Depot that I looked in the mirror and said, you know, I can do this corporate thing really well. I'm just tired of what I have to do to make it work. You know, I'd, I'd been very successful, but I came to terms with the fact that I was really a bit of a misfit in the corporate world. And what was interesting was as I transitioned out of corporate and started my first business, which was consulting, I found myself doing a lot of work with organizations, primarily in the U.S., because that's where all my contacts were when I started my consulting business. And I, and I kept running into great people in great organizations, but who themselves had also become misfits. Oh, interesting. And they hadn't always been misfits. And, and so what was, what was cool was that along the way for about five years, Lisa, a big part of my work was working at the intersection of people and organizational systems. And one of my entry points into that work was around doing leadership development work and specifically coaching but more teaching leaders in organizations to use the coaching skills as part of their repertoire okay. and using coaching as a tool to deepen relationships to unleash performance to build engagement all the rest of those things and and in doing that training almost every time and it didn't matter which of my clients I was at there would be people who come up to me at the end of the you know two or four day coaching Training session. Who would say? I mean, the stuff you always want to hear. That was that was a great session. Blah blah blah. But but at some point they'd say in the conversation, "You so clearly love what you do, and it comes across in in the delivery." Right. And then they'd hesitate for a second, and they would say something along the lines of, "I used to have a piece of that. That was mm-hmm. that was me when I started here, and that's what got me starting to think about this notion of fit." Right. Because because I think. The one universal truth is I haven't yet spoken to anybody who hasn't been able to put their finger on the time in their career when they were a great fit, when they were on fire, and in the zone, and it was effortless, and they loved the work they were doing and the people they were doing it with, and they can just as easily put their finger on the time in their career when they were a misfit.
0: Yeah, and sometimes it's in the same role.
1: It was for me at Frito. Me too, yeah. The only thing that changed was my manager. And and I'll tell you, I mean, in the course of two or three months... I went from being confident, successful, doing great work, feeling great about what I did, to feeling completely unsure of myself and undermined, and taking a lot of that home with me. So it result, you know, it, when, when things are going well, it infuses your whole life. And when things aren't going well, it infuses your whole life. And the only thing, literally, the only thing that changed was a new boss came in. Interesting, yeah. And I made the mistake of convincing myself that I could fix it. So I hung in about 10 months longer than I should have done thinking that it would change and I could make it work. And it was exhausting.
0: Well, it's it's interesting because I I can relate to that. And I can tell you that many of my clients that I work with, I, I see people go through this and, you know, we often say stuff like, you know, I stayed too long. I knew much earlier. And, you know, I've kind of been challenging my thinking around that recently. And I'll tell you why, because I think that it takes us time to figure out why is there a lack of fit all of a sudden? like so in your case it was the manager, but, but beyond that if you if you you know unravel that a little bit further for me context had changed not the leader and so the things you know i really thought about what i really loved doing part what was core to me building starting fresh fresh sleep it was no longer there right and there were other different things that came in that you know like a, 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 there were some values uh, misalignment and right. so once i was clear on that then it became apparent I had to do something about it. I had to move. But it took me a while to figure that out. What do you think about that? Well, I think,
1: I think two things are true. I, I, th- I think it's hard to see clearly when you're in it. Yes. And it's especially hard to see clearly when you're in it if you don't have a coach or somebody who's working with you from the outside. Because mm-hmm. at times like that, it's really hard to confide with coworkers. And so unless you've got somebody who's external to the organization, who's really only focused on supporting you and your success with no, no agenda attached to it and, and giving you the, the, the gift of being able to step back and see things as clearly as you can while you're in it, it's just really hard. So that's, that's the value for me of hindsight. Yeah. But what that episode in my life when I was doing that work with organizations really underscored for me is there's a legion of people out there who... Have become misfits, and so fit's not a static thing, right? If if the fits if the fits right at the beginning, that's no guarantee the fit's going to be right two years later or five years later. And because everything is dynamic, it's organic. Things are always in flux; they're always growing and shifting and changing. And and there are times when they no longer are working. And people have been taught to suck it up and just let it pass. Or the you know we've got a mortgage and we got kids growing up, and the paycheck's important. And I don't think many organizations really understand how many people are have become misfits right in an organization. Because it's it's hard to it's hard to identify. It's hard to track. You know, the reality is they're still showing up for work every day or most days. They're still, you know, their work is fine. You know, everything is fine. And yet nobody's on fire any
0: longer. <laughs> so how does so clearly this has led to perhaps how you named your company. <laughs> Tell tell me about Fit First and and the connection to what you've been describing. It's another accident, you know. It it, (laughs) it,
1: happened. I mean it it came out of a series of events. One of my clients at the time was a retail company here in Canada, and they were already large. They had four brands. They they were in I think six provinces and growing like crazy. And like everybody in retail. You know the challenge is how do you find the the right people for your business and they had two particular pain points one was because of where they were in their growth cycle they had no choice but to recruit experienced people from outside the organization so they were paying a premium a big premium to bring in people who had done two and three times in other organizations exactly what this organization needed done to support their growth and the challenge was more than half the time those people were flaming out not because their knowledge and experience You know, this asset the company had paid a premium to acquire was misplaced. It wasn't at all, but because they weren't, they didn't fit the culture. So the company had a really tough choice to make. Either do we build a wall around this person, not let them interact with anybody in the organization and try to extract what we can from them, or do we just part company? And the second pain point for them was, you know, in any retail, like hospitality, in the sense that a big part of the business model is based on finding great people at the associate level but a certain proportion of them need to be promotable because that's the pump that feeds your front-level management, mid-level management, and on up. And And that pump wasn't priming for them. They had lots of great associates, but none who were promotable. I can still remember the one day I was I was in there working with the the leadership team, one of their monthly meetings. I can't even remember what we were talking about, but something came up and the CEO was triggered. I mean, he was angry and he was pointing at me and he had spit flying out of his mouth. <laughs> and he said, you know, this, all of this stuff, we're paying a huge amount to figure out the talent management side of things and it's not working. I need you. And he was, this is when he was shaking. I need you to go down to HR and find out what we're doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I did. You know, I, I, I went and sat down with them and had them walk me through the process and the steps and why, you know, what was working and what wasn't. And what was really unsettling, Lisa, is if I had brought with me, and I didn't, but if I had brought with me a list of, best practices from my days in corporate. And and let's face it, I mean, Frito, Hilton, Office Depot, all pretty sophisticated companies with lots of really good practices. So I'd, you know, mm-hmm. I'd learned I'd learned for some really good places. But if I brought that list of best practices with me into that meeting, I'd have been able to tick almost every one of those boxes. Mm-hmm. So they were doing everything, quote, right, but something fundamental was misfiring.
0: So how did you figure that out?
1: Well I didn't right away. So you know, as as coincidence as coincidence would have it, I met the guy not long after that who became my co-founder and business partner. And Tim lives out in Halifax. He'd been on his actually, as it turned out, we didn't realize it at the time. We'd, we'd been contemporaries at Frito for a period of time, and he left that organization, got into performance coaching in organizations, had used assessments in the course of his work here and there, but the conversation was a pretty sporadic one because we'd meet up for dinner when you know Tim came into Toronto. We'd grab a beer somewhere. And and we kept picking away at this question that that you phrased, you know, what was what was missing. And we were looking at the Gallup work, you know, all of their research into engagement. We looked at a number of studies. HBR had done some longstanding work to study the success of salespeople over long periods of time. We looked at academic research around predictors of performance. And, and it all came together this one night we were up at a restaurant. I remember it was in Mississauga called Moose Winooski's on Mississauga Road up by the oh, of, the, yeah. of the, with, you know, the brown paper tablecloths and a cup of crayons mm-hmm. on the table. And Tim and I started to doodle literally. So our, our business plan came together on this tablecloth and, and essentially what had come clear to us is we'd all been in the habit when we were in corporate and all of our clients were in the habit of starting from the resume. And, and looking at a pile of resumes and, and, and I still remember having to, because it was, you know, I was in this, in the days before applicant tracking system. So we were doing it old school with, with piles of paper resumes and figuring out based on somebody's education and experience, the, the, the particular schools they'd gone to, the particular employers they'd had, you know, looking for patterns that would have us put somebody in the A pile. And if they didn't have that pattern, we'd put them in the C pile. And if they sort of had the pattern, we'd put them in the B pile, but they, they were all made up rules and and this one study that really got our attention in the in this research phase that we were in came out of University of Manchester in the UK and it's and and we liked it because it's it's research that had been repeated over over time and the and the stats didn't change but what they were studying was the predictive value of each of the bits of information that we capture about people as we take them through the selection process so everything from You know, interests and experience and education, right through to possibly if the company is going to administer a psychometric or what their thinking style is. And what struck us in that research was the data that's in the resume is a very weak predictor of success. In fact, it's, it's the three weakest predictors of success, statistically speaking. And I don't want to dismiss the resume because obviously it's it's still a critical bit of information, but sometimes we put too much weight in certain things and and it can be misleading and so and so if you look at the mechanics if you look at hiring as a process in most organizations and we did this when we were in corporate is you're starting from information that's a weak predictor of success to get down to the short list and then trusting the interview process when you get in front of people and if you look at it from a lean perspective if you look at lean manufacturing process for example you always want to have your most predictive elements at the front end of the process, because that's what's going to give you greater consistency at the back end of the process. And, and we were looking at this research from the University of Manchester and seeing thinking style and behavioral fit as the most valuable predictors, the most reliable predictors of somebody's success, rarely being administered in the process. And if they are, it's usually the shortlist. And our question became, well, what if we could find a way to actually snap that in at the front end?
0: Mm-hmm. So it really came down to like switching up the sequence and also the weighting attributed to each of the of the indicators.
1: Yeah, that's exactly wow. what it was. It was it was sh- it was primarily shifting the sequence. Is getting to get the most reliable yep. bit of data as early as you can in the process.
0: So tell us a little bit about how you you know tested that out.
1: Well, so our first system, <laughs> the, the 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 prototype that we'd sketched out on the brown tablecloth bear in mind, this is 16, 17 years ago now, Mm -hmm. was almost comically simple because we didn't have access to behavioral science at that point. We couldn't afford to buy our own really rigorous behavioral science. We were making assessments available to our clients, but they were other people's tools that we were reselling. And because they were big and complex and expensive, they tended to reserve them for the shortlist at the end, which is fine. So we thought, well, how can we help them get it better? And, and, and our first step was to put the first interview online. So at the same time as, you know, we were collecting a, a resume and a cover letter, we would also serve up the first interview to candidates. And we clustered questions based on what we called the four critical aspects of fit and the four critical aspects of fit is, is a phrase that we coined. Which came out of looking at some of the academic research around fit, but it also what we discovered was it dovetails really nicely with all of all of Gallup's work around engagement. Mm. Right. So if you look at Gallup's Q twelve questions, which are right. the you know, Gallup was the first one to come to market with this employee engagement. Yeah, that's
0: survey. Word considering, yeah.
1: Their slant on is it's really about the relationship, right? It's about the relationship that the individual feels with different components at work. But those different components at work really fall into four categories. You know, my relationship with my manager, my relationship with my work, my relationship with my coworkers, and my relationship with the organization. You know, I feel proud to work here. I, I, I feel proud to tell my friends that I work here and what I do. And so we just twisted that up very slightly and said, well, if an organization is looking for engaged employees, then the starting point has to be f- helping them find people who are going to be engageable in the reality that's waiting for them.
0: Yeah, I right. like that word, engageable. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an
1: important part of the fit, right? So, yes, you need an engaging manager. You need an, a, a manager who builds followership. But if you don't have the right raw material, somebody who's engageable in that reality, then it's not going to click. So we started to talk about the four aspects of fit as predictors of engageability
0: mm-hmm. and
1: made it about fit with manager, fit with the job, the way we do it around here, fit with the people I'm spending my day with, whether that's customers or coworkers and finally fit with the organization itself. And and so in that very early 1.0 version platform that we launched, the questions that we baked into the online interviews for our clients were open-ended questions related to those four aspects of fit, and we'd always pair them. Okay. So, it would be things like, "Lisa, tell me, who was the who was the best manager you ever worked with, and what was it about that person that made them such a great manager for you?" And the because of the f- way the question was phrased, it would force people to go deep into their memories. Right. It's not a it's not a top of the mind response because yeah. they, they need to go deep to tell you the story.
0: Exactly. Well, when you and I were talking in the green room, that's exactly what I was describing to you when we were trying to get at that fit, both fit for current yeah. state and and aspirational fit for where the organization was trying to go as a culture. Right. Those
1: and, and, and there's no right wrong answer to those questions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the persons without without realizing it they're telling you lots about their attitudes. They're telling you lots about what has worked for them in the past and why, and what they respond well to. But we'd always pair the opposite questions. So Lisa, who was the worst manager you ever worked with? And what was it about that person that made them an especially poor manager for you? And and so you'd get both sides. And then we'd ask a similar pair about you know fit with coworkers. We'd ask a similar pair about fit with the job. And in these open-ended answers we'd get all kinds of insights into their attitudes, their values, their beliefs, their standards. And so what was what was happening was, you know, there was there was no way for us to score any of those answers, but the clients that were using the system were reading those open-ended open-ended responses and really holding them up against what they know is waiting for them in the organization and trying to decide subjectively, completely subjectively yeah. which yeah. ones are likely to, you know, Based on what we offer, is this person likely to thrive or not? Right. And it took us about four years after that before we had the, the reserves to be able to commission some really big and expensive work with a team of behavioral scientists to take the, you know, the really rock solid behavioral science that was in those assessments that we were offering up to our clients to use with their shortlist and bake it into the front end of our system. So the twist now for our clients was, yeah, we were still collecting the resume and the cover letter and taking people through pre screen questions, but the final part of the process would be a really short, typically six to 10-minute behavioral questionnaire that was specific to the job they were applying to. But the upside for the employer was now everybody who applied had a FIT score beside their name. Okay. And so they were sorting the stack based on FIT score, starting with the person who's most compatible behaviorally, with the open position and looking at their resume to make sure that there's no red flags and that they're at least in the right ballpark in terms of knowledge and experience and it was about six years ago maybe close to seven that we came to market with talent sorter which is that platform and and it was scary lisa honestly it was it was it was like having a baby in the sense that you know you 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 know this thing's coming to market but you don't know how the world's going to greet it (laughs) and so and we were really curious, because we we knew all of the features and benefits that we baked into it. so we could we could describe it intellectually. we We could describe what it did. but we we couldn't, for the first several months, describe the value to employers because we needed to have clients using it long enough to tell us what they saw. and and what was what was interesting was we had feedback that started to shape up in predictable waves. So the first wave would be, you know, this is saving us a lot of time. We're spending less time in fewer interviews, but with better people. Right. And so, you know, we're filling our positions more quickly. We're spending less time in bad interviews with people who look great on paper. And we're able to spend that time that we've gained much more strategically than we might have otherwise. So that was always great to hear. Yeah, high value. The second wave was almost, it, ca- it came in two parts. The first part was, you know, as we look back, these people that we've hired have been a great fit for our business and so we asked them, so what is, how do you know? And there was, Very few metrics that they could give us hard and fast, but they'd say things like, you know, they're onboarding faster, they're productive sooner, they're staying longer, they're taking friction out of my operation, whatever it was. But almost always then they'd sort of cock their head to one side and say, you know what we've realized is a lot of these people that we've hired who are doing so well with us are people we'd never have looked at in a million years based on anything in their resume. Mm. That was always my reaction. That was the isn't that interesting so you know our our hypothesis had always been there was a lot of a lot of great candidates getting lost in the in the shuffle between the long list and the short list right but we had no way of proving that until now right so this is one of our one of our clients coined a phrase that we love to use they said you know what we're what we're what we're finding is this fit first approach is helping us find great people in surprising packages
0: It's so interesting. And it seems to, you know, this has been a theme that's coming up in a few conversations I'm having about turning on its ear the tradition of looking at those linear progressive, you know, career paths and and thinking that's the only way. And Mm -hmm. when in actuality, a lot of the best fit, the best performers are those surprising packages, people that fell into something accidentally or had an, you know, unconventional stint over in something completely unrelated, right. right? But yet brings them all kinds of perspective and, and expertise that ironically, directly relatable to the job at hand. Yeah. So it, it's it's very, very interesting. So well, one thing that I I want to make sure we, we have time to talk about is earlier, you were telling me about some work that you're exploring doing in the US with a large American college and trying to reskill, upskill a huge number of people, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that endeavor, what what that could involve, and and some of this technology and your thinking around fit would play into it.
1: No, well, it's another accident.
0: <laughs> you get, you're
1: getting a theme in the conversation, at <laughs> so, least. You know, not long after we launched Talent Sorter, we became curious to see if we could make the technology work the other way around. Right. So, so we built Talent Sorter to screen 200 people for fit in open position. What we were curious about was could you have an individual go through the the behavioral assessment and an interest inventory and maybe a couple of other bits and pieces and then project them into a universe of occupations and help guide them to better choices. And it turned out it worked really well in that direction too. and And so we started to build out different iterations as we were building it and testing it with different groups. We had some really amazing opportunities presented to us that we hadn't pursued, but they just sort of fell into our lap to work with agencies and organizations who work with folks who are not mainstream. Let's just put it that way. So the first was an agency that works with people who have intellectual and physical disabilities, and their task is to bridge them into employment. We ended up working with probably 10, maybe a dozen organizations who do the same work with folks on the autism spectrum. Similar work with formerly incarcerated, with at-risk women and youth, with veterans who are struggling to reintegrate and what was what was there were two things that were really valuable for us to learn through that exercise one was we we were able to discover that the the technology the science baked into it was really helpful in bridging those folks into employment opportunities in part because it was able to take some of the perceived risk off the table for the employers they were meeting with you know the conversation shifts really quickly when the career advisor or the job developer bringing their client to meet with an employer says i'd like you to meet so and so And as you see on this report that I just put in front of you, they're an 86 fit score for that open position you have. Now, all of a sudden it's not what's wrong with so-and-so it's what's possible with so-and-so and what's the, you know, what could we, what could we do together? And so we've started now to build out a much more robust career planning application, which is really the the, the backside of talent sorter is called Job Tomize. And in Job Tomize, we've got a space for individuals to go and, and self-navigate towards jobs that are likely to lead to happier endings, as we like to describe it. And there's also a space for anybody who's an intermediary in that relationship, so career advisors. But what's interesting is we originally designed that space for folks in workforce development spaces. Well, we've got a, a really cool diversity of, of people and organizations that have started to show up in that intermediary space. We've got industry associations using it. One of them is the Ontario Electrical League to help them find more apprentices, and we've had just incredible results there. Not the least of which is they've, you know, we, t- we talk about the emphasis on diversity and equity and inclusion in today's world, as we should, without any real outbound effort, what the Electrical League has found is that 24% of the candidates they've hired are diverse candidates who come from pools that had been underrepresented previously in the trade, which highlighted for us how focusing on the resume as the starting point really
0: excludes people who
1: have non-traditional backgrounds. It doesn't matter. They they just can't hope to have the right combination of keywords and phrases in their resume.
0: Things that were necessary. Right.
1: And so one of our clients put it beautifully. And this is another one of these gems that just landed in my lap that we use liberally. And, and the way they put it is, you know, what we've learned is aptitude is evenly distributed in the population. Opportunity is not. And when you think about what's in the resume, it's nothing more than a summary of the opportunity somebody's had access to up until now in their life, in terms of access to skills, training, education, meaningful employment, networks, you know all of those things and 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 when you when you let go of that as a barrier and just put on a different set of glasses that help you look for aptitude rather than pedigree you're going to find aptitude all around you and so that's you know you you mentioned the work at Dallas College they've mm-hmm. they've landed a significant grant from the US Department of Labor to repurpose some folks who've been displaced by the pandemic and by technological disruption and other things their mandate is to fill to train and to place 4,000 people in careers in advanced manufacturing, IT, and transportation logistics. And so, you know, we're we're along for the ride with them. And in part, it's, you know, at the front end, it's going to be to help them identify people who are naturally well-suited to those careers. The investment in training is going to be well-placed. And so that they're going to be likelier to stay in the jobs waiting for them at the end of the training commitment, and I suspect that we're probably going to need to screen at least ten thousand people in order to find those four thousand. so cool we're thing using
0: is, we're leveraging we're,
1: we're using we're using job to for that, yeah. and and we're also using job to to create a safety net because you know when I said to them, so let's say it's ten thousand that we screen to find your four. What do you do with the castoffs? What do you, what do, you do with the six thousand people who showed up? And and what is it? Too bad, so sad. So what we're doing is is we're actually doing two things. We're, we're giving them their career planning report that projects them into the entire Onet Occupational Library of 1,300 careers and, and chooses their best picks with the idea that they can take that report back to the agency that referred them. So whether it was Urban League or Goodwill or wherever they came from, at least the agency is going to have something tangible now to help redirect them to something that's going to lead to a better outcome for them. But because Dallas College is a network of seven campuses across North Texas, that's a community college that trains people, you know, for careers, they're also going to take that data and say, what else could we be preparing these people for? So Dallas College is actually going to be preparing a pretty significant safety net for those folks as well so that they don't feel stopped if they're just not picked for
0: well, them. I you they know, could inform the new programming that they offer, right? Absolutely, it will. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, congratulations on that particular piece of work because it sounds like it'll it'll be very meaningful. And it's very timely because we're seeing more and more, we hear about it all the time, people that have been not cast out, but
1: but displaced. You
0: know, displaced. Yeah, it's a much better term, you know, through the pandemic, but even before that. And with technology just, you know, moving at an ever increasing rate, it's going to be more imperative that, right? That we start to to help people figure out what's the next adventure especially if it looks nothing like their first or second or third rodeo right and <laughs> and
1: and building from the resume to figure out your next step is is flat-footed you know so that i think you know we spoke a little bit about this before we before we hit record but you know i think it didn't occur to us and and we're learning so much as we go lisa but you know the the this whole notion of instead of helping somebody figure out their next move based on their skill adjacencies let's instead help them figure out what their next move could be based on their behavioral adjacencies. Trusting that if we're moving towards something that's more future-friendly, but there might be an investment required in skills or knowledge, that that investment is going to be secure.
0: Yeah, it's a a whole other, you know, way way to look at it and think what really occurs to me here is how important it's going to be to to challenge the traditional thinking that's still very entrenched out there in general, right? And given the growing urgency, what are your thoughts on that? How do do we, I mean, Fit First is doing its part, you know, but y- you've got a product and so on. And I'm thinking, what about the rest of the talent acquisition professionals listening, HR, talent management? You know, what what are some ways that we can start to help facilitate that kind of change?
1: I think, I think there's a few ways, right? So it's interesting because I was on a call earlier today with a group of HR professionals from uh, member organizations of the Idaho Manufacturers Association. And you talk about tight talent pools. I mean, Idaho is a small state, you know, they're desperate for people. And what I shared with them in answer to a very similar question was where we've seen success in other places, Lisa, which is each of the organizations actually starting to think as a community and thinking in partnership with community colleges, with workforce agencies, with organizations who work with people from different walks of life, whether they have disability or whether they're newcomers or whatever it is, but really starting to think now of the labor pool as a regional asset, that we all have a responsibility to steward effectively. And it's incredible how when leaders in a regional context like that begin to engage as a unit, all the different aspects of their community, how solutions start to appear. And it and it starts with taking an intensely personal-centric view of what an individual's full potential is and helping guide them through the education, the development, and the career opportunities that are going to help them. Well, it, it'll help them maximize their potential, but at the same time, guess who else's potential it maximizes along the way. Everybody wins.
0: Yeah, it is truly win-win.
1: So, so that's part of it. And then, and then internally, I think the other piece is, you know, we've, we've always had a huge challenge with hiring managers who are stuck and fixated on a specific resume type. Right. And in our experience has been objective data, like that situation I described for you, where the job developers meeting an employer and putting a report in front of them saying, this is an 86 fit score. Objective data can often win over subjective beliefs about what's important in a resume. And that's shown itself more than once in our relationship with our customers.
0: Right. Bringing data, being able Bringing to data. test with that data. Data
1: that's accessible, understandable, and that makes yeah. sense to people.
0: To help help nudge people along, right? Open them up to new ways of thinking and operating. Yeah. So, well, fascinating stuff. You and I could spend hours. I think- <laughs> I'm this. not sure anybody's still listening, but- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of nuggets of wisdom here, you know? so thank you so much. For coming on the show and um thanks for having me. sharing with us your your views and 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 what you do and, and how your company is is helping with the challenges of the day when it comes to getting the right people in the right place at the right time and a pleasure thank you thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in if you enjoyed the show please share it with your colleagues better yet, head over to iTunes and let us know. When you subscribe and leave me a five-star review, not only do I glow from within, but more people will learn about the show and why they should listen. Until next time, keep telling the talent management truth.